The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Tim, all great men have known hard times. Uncle Martin, I don't want to be a great man. I just want to be a simple reporter on the sun. And would you sell yourself out for this? Tim, would you have really written a soft review, accepted and perpetrated the hogwash, let the children of this nation be deceived in believing something that isn't true? Uncle Martin, it's easy for you to talk. You've been here all day just plugged in, nice and cozy and happy, and, and just worrying about yourself. I'm worrying about you. You should be, because if Mr. Trimble won't accept my apologies, I'm through. There are more important things. That's right, there are, and they all go hand in hand with finding a job and paying the rent and paying the grocery bills. And principles, convictions, how much do they cost him? What are you willing to spend on them? Uncle Martin, you just don't understand. No. You don't understand. Morning, London. It is Thursday, July 17th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be they just don't understand. I guess that's the theme of today's show. We'll be talking about truth, about lies, and about BS, and how to tell the difference. We're going to talk about the Greens' real agenda. You think it's about the environment. It's not really. drive through ban. You just had the hearings in London the other night. Who won? We'll talk about that a little later on. But first, I want to start with an issue of... Uh, principles and morality and, and uh, moral neutrality. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And of course, you can always email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. And of course, visit the website at chrwradio.com. Uh, just a, a quick uh, note on our show last week. Uh, we had a show on where we had our guest, uh, Paul McKeever, leader of the Freedom Party. There appeared to have been a few technic- technical difficulties on this show last week, one being a minor microphone problem with one of the mics here we had in the studio, and the other being that uh, CHRW Radio's website was temporarily down during our live broadcast last week. And since the system is generally automated, that meant that anyone linking to that archive would have gotten our previous week's show to last week. And so those who usually listen to the show live on the Internet as well may not have been able to do so at that particular moment. However, here is the good news. Last week's show is now available online, again at www.justrightmedia.org, and where you can actually watch last week's show in living Technicolor. I'm not kidding. In addition to having the availability of the show in the usual uh, audio format that we have. And if you go right to the top of the web page there, you'll see an additional video link, which will take you to YouTube, which has been produced and put together in a very entertaining fashion by our guest last week, Paul McKeever. And, of course, the subject we discussed then was the psychology of green. And I understand that there have already been several hundred viewings of the show just in the first uh, few days that it's been up. So 
I want to say thanks to everybody that made the show available so quickly. Alec G here at the station and and Taff and uh, Paul McKeever himself, our guest, who did the work. So uh, I think you might enjoy it. There's a few laughs and there are a lot of visuals added. It might be an example of what this show might be like if it were a television show instead of a radio show. But back to our theme. Morally neutral, what they don't understand about principles and morality. You know, I talk about this a lot on the show, and it's a, it's a kind of a common theme to all the subjects I'm hoping to introduce today. But basically, you know, you watch business people and conservatives, and they're both very pragmatic about a lot of things. And that means in so many ways they're very short-ranged in, in their approach, particularly uh, to most political issues. They might not be that way about their own interests and their, and their businesses and their personal careers. They'll think long-term when it comes to that. But when it comes to political issues, the public sphere, short-term pragmatic thinking is generally the rule. And unfortunately, uh, this, I think, causes a lot of confusion about the natures of principles and morality, e- even their own. I'm not talking about my principles or my morality, but uh, how even their own principles, self-professed principles, uh, how they apply in practice. And uh, interestingly enough, nor do they seem to be aware of the price that they will eventually you know, pay for failing to make that connection. That's certainly a theme we'll be talking about with the uh, drive through ban later on. But fundamentally, I think uh, either they don't understand or they do not care in certain ways. This applies to two somewhat different stories we'll be talking about today, and one, of course, the meeting. The other one is this story, which is completely removed from anything local. And I had honestly expected this to be a good news story when it first crossed my path. And as I look at it closer, my expectations were somewhat diminished, but I still like a lot of the major message here. And it's, uh, it's I got this article, this is out of the National Post. And uh, I believe July 8th by Andrew Porter. And the headline reads, UK Tory leader gets politically incorrect. Obese, poor, often responsible for own woes, he says. And that's uh, the heading in the National Post. And then in the, in the body of the article it reads, and this is uh, a story out of London, the other London in England. David Cameron, leader of Britain's opposition conservatives, attacked the culture of moral neutrality yesterday calling on the obese, the idle, and even the poor to accept some responsibility for their plight. Britain risks creating a society where nobody is prepared to tell the truth about what is good and bad and what is right and wrong, he said during a visit to a deprived area of Glasgow. Society has become, quote, far too sensitive, end quote, to people's feelings, with no one prepared to say, quote, what needs to be said. Instead, we prefer moral neutrality, a refusal to make judgments about what is good and bad behavior, right and wrong behavior. Bad, good, right, wrong. These are words that our political system and our public sector scarcely dare use anymore, he added. There is a danger of becoming quite literally a demoralized society where nobody will tell the truth anymore about what is good and bad and what is right and wrong. And the article goes on to say it is a sign of Mr. Cameron's confidence, backed by consistent opinion poll leads of 18 points over the ruling Labour Party that he feels able to make, make such, such strong comments. Now, of course, there's a, in the background of this, there's a by-election going on in that particular uh, riding that they're talking about. But if the only reason he's saying these things is because he's so far ahead in the polls and he knows that they're popular or may be popular points of view, 
one has to wonder whether he's speaking out of principle. You know, I wonder if he's, what would he have been saying if the polls were 50-50 or if his support was in the minority? And when you hear, when you read a comment like that, the implication is that he would, you know, behave just like the rest of society that he just criticized by not daring to talk about it otherwise. Because, of course, if you do, uh, and the, the majority is opposed to you, you're not going to get elected, are you? That's one of the built-in uh, general problems with uh, <laughs> with so-called democracy, which is the best system, you know, discounting all the others. But in principle, I generally agree with his general and broad observations. And uh, But again, I wonder if we were talking about the same things. The next day in the National Post, there was a context provided for a little bit more of this, and it came under uh, an editorial by Craig Offman, July 9th, Tracking Society's Incremental Erosion. Politicians' moral neutrality comment signals the end of blamelessness, he says. And he writes that uh, when British Tory leader David Cameron issued a stunning criticism of the obese, the poor, and the politically cor correct this week, he invoked an academic phrase that has become the bête noire of conservative philosophy. Proponents of the concept criticized by Cameron believe that politicians and lawmakers should not determine what makes or detracts from a morally worthy way of life. Instead, they reference a central tenet of a 19th century philosopher, John Stuart Mill, they, what is called the harm principle. Citizens can do whatever they want, provided they do not injure others. Critics increasingly worry, however, that as benign as a little lifestyle liberalism might seem, it can collectively take a huge toll on society. Some vices can seem harmless, said Princeton jurisprudence professor Robert George. A guy hiring a prostitute, taking heroin, or looking at porn online doesn't seem like a big deal, but on a widespread level, that's a big deal. They also debunk the notion of moral neutrality. It's impossible, Professor George says. On an individual level, people make moral decisions every day and, and might not even know it. For example, we know what, or that it is deeply unworthy for people to live a short, unhappy life of drug addiction, Professor George said. We can appreciate that human life has dignity and value. As Professor George and other detractors say, culture and law are inextricably entwined. The law might follow the lead of cultural movement and vice versa. A law, no matter how neutral it might seem, informs behavior. Professor Douglas Farrow of McGill says that moral neutrality remains a prevailing wisdom of his students who believe there's no such thing as absolute values. The notion of tolerance has created more tolerance, uh, intolerance rather, because people are afraid to judge, and the more reticent they are, the more issues are buried and perhaps more likely to rear their head unexpectedly. He predicts that with its own problems of relativism and senseless violence, Canada could soon face its own David Cameron moment. There, the trigger apparently is yet another mindless stabbing. In Toronto, we've had similar things, mindless shootings. Hopefully, we can learn a little bit from what's going on. I'll talk about moral relativism, implying that uh, watching porn leads to mindless killings. A little liberal lifestyle may be harmless and okay, but a lot of people have... If, if a lot of people have a liberal lifestyle, that's bad. Interesting logic. I have a caller on the line, I believe. It is Marcel. Marcel, are you there? Yes, I am, Bob. What can we do for you today? Bob, I just want to add a, my two cents worth on uh, morality uh -huh. and ethics and all that, good and evil and all that. Yeah. And I will get to that. Okay. But uh, uh, I've listened to your shows before, and, it's, and I've had called before. Yes. And it's pretty frustrating when I get to come on and do my two minutes when uh, you go on in length for a good hour regarding your views. 
And, uh, and I've noticed overall that you have a, a major bug up your butt. Can't hear him. Oh, you cut him off? Did he say something bad there? Oh, that's too bad, because uh, I would have loved to have heard the uh, comment all the way through, because he could be very right about that. I do have a major bug up my, my rear end about some issues, but they're justified. Uh, you know, when somebody says it's frustrating that I only get two minutes and you get an hour, uh, you know, trust me, yeah, it's my show, as, as Taff says. But only, I've been in that situation, and you can easily get onto a show anytime you want. Stations like this are begging for people uh, to do volunteer work and get out there and give their opinions. I've talked even about that a lot on this show. But uh, it's unfortunate that uh, I didn't get to hear you out, Marcel. I don't know. Obviously, maybe somebody else has a little something up their butt there, so... <laughs> So back to the the issue here. We were talking about um, morality issue and how some business and conservatives uh, people look at it. Now, you know, did you notice the huge disconnect just in the article I just read between mindless stabbings and mindless shootings and watching porn or doing drugs, whether it's legal or illegal or even paying for sex? Uh, You know, if anything, stabbings and other forms of murders definitely fall into the category of harming others. And I would say quite demonstrably so, wouldn't you say? And while it may well be true that a person can, quote, harm himself, end quote, through uh, immoral actions, that's a separate issue from the issue of where the law should properly be applied. Above all, I think the law shouldn't be underwriting and subsidizing various forms of vices, although, as anyone can see, uh, gambling, alcohol, prescription drugs, and cigarettes are all run or regulated under strict government monopolies or very strict regulations, uh, like the recent display covers, which now cover up uh, the also government-mandated health warnings on cigarette packs. I thought that was funny. You know, we got to cover up the cigarettes, but uh, we also have to have these warnings and displays on them, which can now not be seen, I guess. I don't get how that's supposed to work. Now, similarly... While it may also be true that, uh, quote, a law, no matter how neutral it might seem, informs behavior, end quote, such behavior-adjusting laws, which is a term that we hear the green activists use a lot, you know, changing behavior, we have to change behavior, uh, they also have profound unintended consequences, as the behavior most informed, I like that word, it's an interesting euphemism for affected or, or prohibited or regulated, uh, it generally finds ways to become uninformed, okay, or unaffected by whatever controlling law that one is discussing. So, you know, laws of this nature are not moral, even if their intent is to help or better the person against which they're enacted. You have to know where to draw the lines. And this is a huge blur, you see, in so many of the issues facing us, from green to just regular liberal conservative stuff. Uh, uh, you know, a moral society is one in which the use of physical force is prohibited in human relationships, and that includes the initiation of the force of government to control and regulate behavior that doesn't involve the legitimate protection of individual rights. I think this is also a good definition for a civilization of the highest order. And, you know, a moral and just society is one in which the government acts to ensure that all relationships are voluntary and consensual. A moral society doesn't accuse objects or outside influences or movies, music, culture, or even wacko left-wing ideas for, for the immoral actions of a particular individual. Only that individual can 
properly be held responsible for his or her own actions. And if you have a society based on anything other than that, you're in trouble. And we can see it over and over again. So I think a lot of the, the moral, quote, decay we're seeing is by is through a lot of what we call social justice. You know, we, 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 we blame society for the wrongdoer rather than blaming the wrongdoer because it's this whole concept of the environment, okay? This magic environment. It makes us do everything, and we are mindless animals who can't think for ourselves. That's basically the whole thought process. Now, just before we take this break, I was. Uh, this is sort of a similar thing. I was involved uh, recently in a debate on a, on a very similar theme, failure to judge and and failure or the unwillingness to distinguish between right and wrong, uh, true and false, etc. Now, last week on the Crossroads Television System Network, with of course I've, I do pretty regular visits on that work network, I was involved in quite a lively one-hour live televised debate on the subject of making distinctions between, for example, large racial groups and small violent terrorist groups uh, within their own culture. Uh, while at the same time not failing to judge those directly responsible for immoral actions. And at the time we were talking about um, the Tamil Tigers versus the labeling of all Tamils, say, as terrorists. So uh, th that subject in and of itself was a little outside my expertise, and I was lucky that I was able to give uh, John Thompson a call uh, down at the McKenzie Institute to uh, update me on some of the basics and the fundamentals on Of course, John was on the show a couple weeks ago talking about a lot of those issues as well. Now, this clip, uh, the show was originally broadcast on the 8th of this month. That was Tuesday last week. And in this discussion, you will be hearing, in addition to myself, uh, the voices of Christine Williams, the host of On the Line, which airs afternoons at 2 p.m. on the network, and the second guest, Hamilton lawyer Hussein Hamdami. And here is how part of that discussion went. And when we return after this break, uh, we'll be back with the uh, the thing that happened at City Hall. And Taff, if you're ready, we can go to the next clip there. Within that movement. It's just like an organized crime movement. Now, to take that movement and to smear with it all people of a certain culture or of a background That's is an wrong. entirely That's separate wrong. issue and is mm -hmm. incorrect. And uh, But I think it's the same mistake to do in reverse, if you know what I'm saying with the label of... Do you, that, do you see that happening in Canada? Do you see that happening in Canada? Right I'm throwing out a very politically incorrect question here. We saw what happened in McLean's, that they were taken to the Human Rights Commission for perhaps perpetuating some of these labels. So, the media reports on certain incidents of crime that happens, whether it be terrorism or whatever that crime may be, that perhaps is more among one group. And do you think that in itself contributes to labeling? Where do you draw the line here? What do you mean? What did, what have, well, from the himself? McLean's point of view, and, and I, I can't speak on behalf of McLean's because we're not here from McLean's, but the their angle would be, for example, all we're doing is reporting the incidents of terrorism in the world, Islamic terrorism, mm -hmm. and because we're reporting it, we're being taken to the Human Rights Commission and deemed that we're perpetuating intolerance in society. Oh, but I don't think that's what the accusation was from McLean's, by the way. I, th I think that those who brought the complaint... Uh, against the human, rights claims, yes. the human Rights Commission, B.C., yeah. and in the federal one, is saying that the article in itself by, Mike, by, by Stein uh, argues that because we can't differentiate between good Muslims and bad Muslims, we should suspect all Muslims. And, and, and the complaint was, well, look, aren't you now inciting hatred for a class of people when you can't say the difference between good Muslims and bad Muslims, so therefore they're all bad? Or they all no, I'll have to get a hold Muslims? of that exact quote because... 
much of what you read is ends up being reporting and it ends up being, well, because you're reporting, you're identifying a certain group. My understanding was that was uh, Mark Stein's article, which was taken out yes, of a book. I've read the book, and I know he, oh, went, he went through his book in detail to always make distinctions and always go out of his way not to <laughs> smear complete groups. But you with. see, he was accused of it, and that ends up being a problem in society. You report on something, and then you could get accused of perhaps perpetuating intolerance and at the same time we do not want an intolerant society so where's the balance guys well, we court systems right i mean i make a lawyer here but when you're a kid walking down the road in a hijab and you get you get called names because of it the court system at that point isn't helping you speaking on behalf of those who do suffer from intolerance no, I, I agree mm -hmm. I, I get called all kinds of names usually when cars that are driving by never take my face but but no no we have racism in society and we and that, that's fine we all need to overcome and work at making society a more inclusive place but what I advocate is look we have a court system that that can it's a nonviolent way of addressing our grievances mm -hmm. and so in that end that's fine. If I think you've wronged me, instead of me trying to kill your cat, I'll take you to court. And I'll let a judge decide whether I'm right or wrong. And if I'm wrong, I've got to pay your legal fees. I, you know, I, sure, this is good for lawyers, and I'm a lawyer, but I like that because it's nonviolent. It's also, your example's good, but yes. it doesn't fit the example we've been talking about because that's talking about wronging a group and making a general opinion about mm. not just an individual who can prove harm to him and we're not talking about a regular court either when we're talking about a human rights commission where the principles that you admire in the court system are all tossed out the window before you even get in the door yeah. and I have defended people in front of a human rights commission successfully amazingly and I'm not a lawyer which was my in <laughs> because I could actually criticize the system but uh, which a lawyer cannot do for Otherwise, they disbar you. I understand. So uh, <laughs> anyway, but that but it's, it's it's not the same thing. I think, and I think we have to be very careful that uh, multiculturalism practice doesn't become tolerance for intolerance. And I think that's what yeah. scares a lot. Great of Great issues about being it. discussed. We'll get back to you after the break. Stay tuned. What's the most important thing in my life? Business. That's who I am. That's what I do. I'm a businessman. And more than that, I'm a Ferenki businessman. Do you know what that means? Let's face it, Quark. There's nothing heroic about earning profit. There is on Ferenginar. We're not on Ferenginar. No, we're not on Ferenginar, although sometimes you might think that's the case. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in the conversation, which is what Marcel did before the break. I understand uh, Taff, our operator, took a note from Marcel during the break there. Uh, he called back off the air to uh, basically suggest that... Uh, I am discriminating against uh, the Green Party, that uh, I'm opposed to the spiritual dimension of their thinking, that I uh, am guilty of childish displays of hatred and the earth religion, etc. And uh, I see in the notes here, what's subjective to the lion is to kill the antelope. And uh, Marcel would like to have a debate. I think that would be a lot of fun, Marcel, um, I'm, if, if, of course, <laughs> somebody doesn't have to cut you off during the debate. but. 
these you, you know you're right about all these things. I am discriminating against the Green Party, and if you're listening to this show, I discriminate against the Liberal Party, against the Conservative Party, against uh, the NDP. Why should the Green Party be left out? I don't understand why you would think I would even do that, since I have a party that I support, and that's called the Freedom Party. And so I discriminate in favor of that party, just the way other people who support their parties discriminate in favor against their their thing. That's perfectly a normal thing. Um, am I opposed to a spiritual dimension of something? No, not to the thinking. It never has been that. What I'm always opposed to is people forcing their spiritual dimensions and thinking upon my spiritual dimension of thinking, which is contrary to theirs. I, I don't see what's so hard to understand about that. That seems to me such a, a, a basic, fundamental no-brainer to me. But uh, my goodness, um, it's interesting, though, your comments, because uh, you're going to hear them again reflected on the show today, because that's where we're going right now, and we're going to be talking a bit about that green movement, especially with the uh, effect of uh, the drive-through band meeting that just, uh, or the lack of drive-through band meeting that just occurred in City Hall the other night. Now, industry, of course, is celebrating victory. In fact, both sides say that they have scored a victory on this. And, uh, you know, you see in the media, though, the media itself has sort of declared a victory for industry in this case. And uh, it's interesting. It's industry versus the environmentalists, these two political groups. It's not about even the environment anymore. It's about economic groups. And, uh, you know, while most of the media declared it a victory for the drive-through industry, as a friend of mine put it, he said, so the drive-through industry in London voluntarily put their heads in the noose. And I think that's pretty much exactly what they did. Now, here's a quote from Paul Van Meerbergen on the radio that I got from yesterday. And he says, it became very clear that the left wing of our committee, Councillors Branscombe, Bryant, and Barber, made it very clear that they see this as just a first step. They really do want to move towards a moratorium two years on future drive-throughs. I imagine they will continue in that vein, says Van Meerbergen, who notes, by the way, that the next meeting on this subject, which will be before an environmental uh, committee, is, uh, I I believe it's in November sometime, so watch for that one to come up again then. And, um, of course, he did support taking the proposed provisions out of the official plan and putting them into the zoning bylaws, but I don't think that's the big picture. Of course, he re- understands that this isn't going to go away. Now, another person that was very interesting on this was Nancy Branscombe, who, of course, is also on the planning committee. And she says, quote, As a minimum, I was happy to get the recommendations that staff proposed Uh, supported because I think it does give us some more stricter regulatory guidelines about where we can have drive-throughs. The environmentalists did not get their say at the meeting. They have a right to express an opinion because of their strong feelings about environmental issues. It's funny how, you know, strong feelings give you a right to uh, be at meetings that aren't even about the subject you want to talk about. (laughs) It's our job as councillors and planning committee to listen to all points of view. I applaud Corey, speaking about Corey Morningstar and her group, speaking about the Council of Canadians, uh, for taking the strong positions that they have. There's awareness of CO2 emissions that I've never seen since I moved here to London. Get the discussion going. That's what this is all really about. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what she's been watching. I applaud Corey and the Council of Canadians and others who feel strongly about the issue. So are we going to ban drive-thrus tomorrow? 
No, but I think it's a fair debate to have about air quality issues. We still need to have it. That's where the CO2 strategy comes in. I happily supported that. I think we've got a lot of drive-throughs here, and I think we could have taken a short pause to evaluate whether we needed more drive-throughs or how many we need and where we'd like them to go. You know, this is a politician telling you that they're trying to be the marketplace, that they're trying to, that somehow a politician can figure out where the traffic is best, where the economic conditions are best. Only, only the investor can figure that out, and he doesn't even make the, the right decision any time. That's why he risks his business. He could go under. You know, that's, that's, it's his risk to take, not ours. And when the government starts regulating to a certain point, you can be sure that the regulators are being controlled by the regulated. And that's always something that develops in governments when they uh, get in bed with business, and you don't want to see that. And, uh, you know, she says a short-term freeze is not the same as a ban. I think it is. And I think these guys grandstanded to get media attention that they got, and it's unfortunate the way the public was exploited. Oh, the public exploited. And industry was shameful. Imagine that. But that's the rough and tumble of politics, she says. There's no secret agenda here. We're trying to do what's best for the city. For the moment, I'm thrilled we got these regulations in place. We got a request for a CO2 plan being forwarded to the Environmental and Transportation Committee, and then the rest will follow, says Nancy Branscombe. Apparently, we got about 154 drive-throughs in the city now, 15 or 16 are in front of some sort of approval process. And, um, you know, a lot of people on the left there think, well, that's just enough because they don't want any more. And, of course, Corey Morningstar herself speaks, I'm really appreciative of Nancy, Gina, Judy, and our progressive council. What the media doesn't report is that we did get what we wanted, the most important thing, which is our CO2 emission strategy. Some of our brightest voices and progressive minds were not allowed to speak last night. We have to get our CO2 emissions down 80 to 90% in the next 20 to 40 years, and we need an infrastructure in place in order to do this. That's what the CO2 study is all about. Now we can look at all of the idling issues, not just drive-throughs. Oh boy, that's going to be fun, eh? This is a win for community and our, or, or for society and our community as a whole, because now we've opened up the dialogue on personal responsibility. We're not going to give up until we start designing our cities around people instead of the automobile. That's what it's all about. It's about a sustainable future for our children, clean air, clean water. And then she concludes, we have in London alone over 108 million idling minutes a year. That's enough to drive around the globe 425 times. <laughs> what an outrageous, outrageous statistic. Meaningless, meaningless in every sense of the word. Uh, enough for how many people to drive around the globe? One person? Four, 425 times? Based on what? I'd like to see the study that did that. And... Um, of course, in referring to the meeting, it's uh, really putting in place what's already taking place so that it's very clear from the outset what was has to happen. This is not about bans on moratoriums or moratoriums. This is Mayor Anne-Marie DeSico best talking. It's really putting in place what's already taking place so that it's very clear from the outset what has to happen. Um, if that's clear to you, then you know something I don't know. So <laughs> I don't know what that's all about. So... You know, we have to take a break right now, and after this break we'll be back with some of what some of the people were saying there and some of the comments that the City Hall's dealing with, because I think you need to hear them for yourself. Some of them are a little so outrageous that it's hard for me to explain to you and to people like Marcel why I end up saying some of the things I do. But we'll be back after this break and some messages. Oh, yeah. My, uh, I'm Italian. My Uncle Carlo wants me to come home, wants me to work for the family. 
Wants me to be a hitman. How good idea, Uncle Carl, to be a hitman. I don't even have a car. I'd be a hitman on the bus. <laughs> I can see it now. What's that? Vinnie the Lemming, Fachakula, owes you some cash. Disrespect the family. Let me check my trusty bus schedule here. Take the number eight, Fraser. Make my 36B downtown connection at 9.15. That f***er will be dead by 10.06. Forget about it. Imagine you get lost, you gotta ask for directions. Hey, Mr. Bus Driver, listen. I gotta whack some jerk off in Park Royal. How do I get there? Uh-huh, mm-hmm. What is that, two zones? Uh -huh. Okay, transfer, please. It's hard being an intimidating tough guy when you're on the bus. You can't do it. You're sitting on the bus. You can't be a tough guy, good fellas, you know, Robert De Niro. Yeah, I got to take care of some guy, you know, doesn't like his kneecaps too much, doesn't want to pay up. <laughs> anyway, this is my stop. I got to go. Ding, ding. short days ago, I was sitting on top of the world, the king of squill. You should have been there, brother. It was a very delicate negotiation. It could have gone either way. But I took my time, picked my moment, and then went in for the kill. It was beautiful to behold. Brother, I think we've been going about this the wrong way. We're not commandos. We're negotiators. We make deals. That's what we're good at. The Dominion has something we want, so we need to find something they want. And then we make a trade. That way everyone goes home happy. Happy and alive. Now, what do we have to trade? Of course, trade is the... One of the fundamental principles of capitalism and the business system and all the things that so much of the green movement doesn't really like. And we're going to see some examples of that. 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join in the conversation today. I'm Bob Metz and you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. We'll be with you for another 25 or so minutes. Now, one of the things that really disturbed me about the meeting the other night was how you almost get the impression, at least from the media reports, that the business community has sort of sat back and relaxed and figured they won this one and, and that they can just dismiss, um, you know, what they might call the enviro-wackos, okay? And I'm trying to, you know, I'd like to urge you all, that's no reason to dismiss their agenda. It's a toxic agenda. Uh, you've got green voices coloring a debate here. Uh, who, frankly, sorry, Marcel, uh, you know, they're creating a poisoned intellectual environment. And here's how they do it. They do it through climate alarmism. They do it through irrationality and promoting fear. They do it through junk science and statistics. They do it through wealth envy. They, they you know, in favor of taxes and government controls, intolerance for scientific debate, uh, religious symbolism and ritual. That's right, Marcel. It's right there. 
uh, misrepresentation and omission, Dismissi- dismissing uh, global warming deniers, you know, just dismiss them. And, of course, they all have extreme anti-capitalist ideologies, and they operate on a false epistemology, which means their thinking isn't quite right. It's not reflecting reality. Uh, you know, here are some, just some of the quotes from um, submissions that were made to City Hall. You don't hear these details in the news. Nobody's going to write them for you. You're just going to... Uh, you know, see how the vote came out, who won, who lost, but you don't get to see the details. And the Council of Canadians under Cory Morningstar, you know, they put a petition before the uh, city council, which was in the minutes a few weeks ago, which I got a hold of, and I went through it, and it was just amazing what some of the comments that accompany uh, the reasons that people are supporting the drive-through ban, and it's got nothing to do with drive-throughs half the time, or not at least the environmental CO2 issue. I'll just give you an example here: of some of the um, common themes that you hear on the from the signatories to the Council of Canadians petition against drive-throughs that went to City Council. For example, Julie Malcolm says, "Quote: People suck." Ah, thanks, Julie. Uh, Mike West, drive-throughs are not a good source for nutritional foods and cause a great deal of idling pollution. Two very big negatives in this already negative capitalistic society. Mike West, I'm in favor of any attempt to tackle the problem of capitalism-induced climate change, including this one, says Steve Darcy. People are lazy, says Ben Wilkinson. Now is the age where the young generation must rise above the capitalist economy of the 20th century and ensure that our most important resource is in good hands, says Vince McDonald. Stop killing my children due to the idling of cars for a bad cup of coffee or for a burger, says Peter Strack. Stop this selfishness and unnecessary behavior, says Liliana Perriera. And finally, Zoe Brown, Canadians already have it too good. You know... We talked about the psychology of green last week. If you haven't seen that show or heard it, this is the time to check it out because this is just a a constant and recurring theme is this hatred of capitalism, of people who work for a living, who provide the very goods that they complain about, and all based on on totally nonsense, and, and, and everyone's got their own little agenda going. Uh, Corey Morningstar, for example, the bottom line is that we have to unite and stop using drive-throughs first and foremost. Drive-throughs are a $129 billion industry a year, 60% of that done at the drive-through windows. We've got enough drive-throughs, no more. So her complaint is that they make profit, they make a lot of money, that uh, most of that's done at drive through windows, so if you hurt them, you can hurt them at the window, because that's where the profit is, and the profit is evil, because profit means pollution, you see, that's how they think which is totally wrong, backward in every respect, but if you believe in things, and that's, again, the belief system. Speaking of which, Elizabeth May, Green Party, London Free Press, April 30th, quote, We're playing with the forces that led to creation. We're nearing the edge of the life force, and we're still playing around. We have a moral obligation to our Lord and Father to ensure we don't destroy the creation that was given to us, end quote. And, uh, you know, you've got uh, Bruce Cox, executive director of Greenpeace, saying that uh, your council's showing leadership by taking on this issue. You know, we, uh, it, well, the change will happen at some time. Change will be coming. We can plan it in an orderly fashion or be overtaken by events. By not simply caving into the fast food industry, it's a step forward. And... Uh, 
of course, now Corey Morningstar made another comment, this one here, that's kind of even more interesting, because she kind of admits that drive-throughs are not the issue, it's all symbolic. Our children's health and climate change are top priorities, and our actions reflect this. A moratorium on new drive-throughs thus symbolizes our true commitment to tackling these issues. And, of course, David Suzuki, the ultimate guru, you know, what is his concern? Well, quote, and I've played this one. You heard him say this directly on this show before. If you go back a few episodes, you'll hear it out of his his mouth. But now it's my turn, quote, There's been a very strong right-wing movement to get government off the back of the people. Smaller government, less regulation, let the marketplace manage things. Governments have very few instruments at their disposal to change human behavior, but they do have two powerful tools. They can tax, and we've got to tax the things we don't want and pull back tax from the things that we want to, or, or give tax to the things we want to encourage. And he says that's two tools. That's actually one tool it's called taxation, and he's using it in two directions. He's using it, one guy's going to pay, the other guy's going to get the money. So it's a transfer of wealth, which is the goal of all socialism, isn't it? We should be charging for the carbon tax, that, for the carbon that we put into the atmosphere. For heaven's sakes, why? On what grounds, on what moral grounds can you make such a statement? You know, we, we breathe it out, so I have to be charged for every breath I take? <laughs> it gets so, so silly. And then, of course, Corey Morningstar, you know, she talks about representing the people. There's another one of those those lines, you know. Quote, we're representing the people, the people from the London District Labor Council, supporters for moratoriums on drive throughs people from the NDP Riding Association, citizens, Council of Canadians, London Coalition Against Pollution. That's the groups that we're dealing with here. And uh, again, Elizabeth May, you know, if there's one thing that comes through with all these concerns is that none of them have anything to do with environmental science or claiming anything. Uh, quote, Elizabeth May, the Green Party's advocating a tax shift. Economists and experts agree that a carbon tax is the single most effective way to deliver a consistent signal to the economy. The argument for a carbon tax is clear. We need to have consistent, coherent pricing signals. There again, politician thinking that they can be the marketplace. Just like uh, Ms. Branscombe, you know. We're going to determine prices. We're going to tell you where you're going to locate, where the market conditions, you know. Municipalities certainly have some responsibilities in providing services, but uh, my goodness. And then, of course, the ultimate goal, thank goodness for, you know, good old Corey Morningstar here. Profits before children or children before profits? Convenience before children or children before convenience? I just think it's... uh, it's funny. And then Judy Bryant, um, she's on the planning chair, too, quote, everything's going to change. Our lifestyles are going to change if we want to have a city that's livable, that's going to attract people to bring their children up here. drive throughs will change. Our cars will change. The number of times we drive them will change. And we'll have more transit. Just out of the blue, that last sentence, you know, oh, and we'll have more transit. <laughs> like, oh, okay, there is the goal. Now I get it. Now I understand what you're talking about. It's starting to make a little bit more sense. But uh, surely uh, you can see how many agendas are on this bandwagon of green. Okay, we'll take a quick break now, and we'll come back right after this and talk a little more about this, because I think there's a lot to say. I'm not definitely not going to get to all of it today. Back right after this. The paleoclimatic data that I and others have collected, it's obvious that climate is and always has been variable. In fact, the only constant about climate is change. It changes continually. 
Past climate researchers have found that over much of the world between about 1400 and in some places as late as 1900, there was a period of colder than average temperature over the world called the Little Ice Age. And before that, there was a period of unusual warmth called the Medieval Optimal, or Warm Period. So warming and cooling are part of the norm. The 20th century is not out of balance compared to the past. So that created a very familiar curve that appeared in the early IPCC reports. And then suddenly, in 1998, a study came out, which is now referred to as the MBH-98, because the three authors' names, the first one is the one that's spoken about the most, which is Mann, um, published a report in which they completely rejected that widely accepted temperature graph. The MBH-98 graph became known as the hockey stick curve where the shaft of the stick was the relatively constant lower temperatures for the first 900 years of the past millennium, and the blade of the stick, the reputed sudden temperature rise of the past century. Although man's research was never audited, the United Nations and environmentalists promoted it as the smoking gun that recent warming was unusual. Analyst Stephen McIntyre, in cooperation with Ross McKittrick of the University of Guelph, decided to take a closer look at the data. We carried out an analysis of the results to see what happened when we uh, recompile, recompiled the data and got quite different answers. Instead of having an extraordinarily high 20th century, we had a 15th century value that was just as high as the 20th century. So the hockey stick disappeared. It's a computer programming error that yields these hockey sticks. This piece of the jigsaw puzzle needs to be removed before science can develop a proper understanding of the climate history of the last millennium. Here's a study that appeared in the uh, world's top science journal, and yet uh, years went by and they never noticed that the data uh, description that accompanied the paper was wrong, uh, that there were uh, very important methodological uh, issues that weren't described in the paper. McIntyre and McKendrick noted that the graph using the corrected data could still be wrong because the methodology used in the MBH-98 was fundamentally incorrect. They wrote in geophysical research letters that, quote, the effect of the transformation is so strong that a hockey stick-shaped PC1 curve is almost always generated from a trendless red noise with the persistent properties of the North American tree ring network, unquote. In other words, when McIntyre and McKendrick analyzed random data using MBH-90 time, It's garbage day tomorrow. I gotta get up. I uh, <laughs> get the pony out to the front lawn. <laughs> I have a 1985 pony Hyundai. 41 more payments. I'm doing all right. <laughs> you guys are so jealous. <laughs> you ever drive along and the hood of your car flips up? That's the most frightening thing in the world. Isn't it? <laughs> Thank God the pony goes. <laughs> the pony's got a big rust hole in the center there. I can see where it's going. <laughs> I just tell the cops, hey, it's the Batmobile. The shields are up. <laughs> 
Welcome back. You're listening to CHRW 94.9 FM. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, where we'll be with you from now till noon. Further to that hockey stick example, I want to thank uh, listener Glenn, who sent me an article that I just got this morning, in fact, and I had to include it in the show because it just fit so smoothly and with that clip that was already said in the show earlier. And this comes from an article written by Robert Ferguson, which refers, uh, Tuesday, July 15th, by the way, 2008, which refers to a peer-reviewed paper in Physics and Society, a learned journal of the 10,000-strong American Physical Society, SPPI reports. And basically, they have published a paper essentially offering mathematical proof that there isn't even a climate crisis, period. It doesn't exist. And it was put together by Christopher Monkton, who once advised Margaret Thatcher, demonstrated via 30 equations that computer models used by the UN's climate uh, panel were pre-programmed with overstated values. Well, not just the values, if you compound what they're saying here with what you just heard on the clip we played, that uh, even the method that they were using, and it almost doesn't matter what values you put in, you're going to get that hockey stick, because that's the way it's programmed. But just taking that aside, here is what Lord Moncton's paper reveals, just some of the quick things that I noticed there. The IPCC's 2007 climate summary overstated CO2's impact on temperatures by 500 to 2,000 percent. Uh, the IPCC's values for these, car- uh, these key variables are taken from only four published papers, not 2,500, as they commonly tell you. Uh, global warming halted 10 years ago, and surface temperature has been falling for seven years. We've been talking about that, about that a lot on this show, and I've been mentioning it for ages. And we had John Thompson from the McKenzie Institute a couple weeks ago explaining how areas of the world now are getting snow that haven't had it for hundreds of years, and yet the IPCC is still running around going, oh, we're melting. Okay. Uh, you know, And, of course, not one of the computer models relied upon by the IPC, uh, IPCC predicted so long and rapid a cooling. Now, I remember doing a show when I sat in for Jim Chapman way back when, just before this show started, so it would be about two years ago now, in which uh, I dealt with um, a study that I had published by another uh, doctor, and just talking about how um, all of the, uh, Hummel is his name, Dr. Richard Hummel, who discussed how the computer models, the computers themselves that they were using to model climate predictions, were purposely handicapped. For for egalitarian reasons, because some poorer countries didn't have the the, the super systems that the U.S. and the West had, so you know you got to use the results from their studies. That's how insane this this whole thing is. And uh, now he wrote that a long time ago. The, the, this the knowledge of this and the whole plan of of how the green movement conducts itself is old news to those who are aware of it. It's totally new news to people who are just hearing it for the first time. And of course, also from the study quote, it was proved 50 years ago that predicting climate more than two weeks ahead is impossible. Mars, Jupiter, Neptune's largest moon, and Pluto warmed at the same time as Earth warmed in the past 70 years, and whenever the sun was more active than at, right now apparently, than at any other time in the past 11,400 years, and that too is something we've covered on the show in the past. Thanks again for that one, Glenn. That was just uh, a little extra on the uh, icing on the cake there. Now, you know, people may ask how does the green movement get away with it how do they how do they do it how do so many politicians for that matter get away with so many outrageous statements and claims and policies and and stuff of that nature 
Well, I had uh, something brought to my attention this week that was just priceless. And it's written by a legitimate, and this is, this is, this is for real, a legitimate professor of philosophy, philosophy emeritus at Princeton University from his book on BS. Now, I can't say the second word of the BS word because that's actually not permitted on the air between, I think it's 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. After that, it's okay. But since we're on at this time of day, we'll just stick with the term BS. I think most of you know what that means. And uh, basically, the professor identifies what BS is and why people use it and why it's different from lying. It's not the same as lying. And it's, I, think, I can't think of a better term than this, okay? Um, but the BSer may not deceive us, uh, writes the professor, or even intend to do so, either about the facts or about what he takes the facts to be. His only indispensably distinctive characteristic is that in a certain way he misrepresents what he is up to. The fact about himself that the uh, BSer hides is that the truth values of his statements are of no central interest to him. It is impossible for someone to lie unless he thinks he knows the truth. But producing BS requires no such conviction. For the BSer, his eye is not on the facts at all, as the eyes of the honest man and of the liar are. He does not care whether the things he says describe reality correctly. He just picks them out or makes them up to suit his purpose. What the person really wants is not to tell a lie, but to attain the goal. Listen to that. What the person really wants is not to tell the lie, but attain the goal. You will see that, that any fact that gets in the way of the goal is just thrown by the wayside. Now, B.S., writes the professor, is unavoidable whenever circumstances require someone to talk without knowing what they're talking about. And the contemporary proliferation of, B, of, of uh, BSers also has a deeper source, as he says, quote, in various forms of skepticism, which deny that we can have any reliable access to an objective reality in which therefore reject the possibility of knowing things how they truly are. These anti-realist doctrines undermine confidence in the value of disinterested efforts to determine what is true and what is false, and even in the intelligibility of the notion of objective inquiry, end quote. Now, that's just a phenomenally revealing statement. It's, it's, it's almost a repeat of what Paul McKeever said on the show last week, too, talking about how uh, people are avoiding the reality of how things really are. Now, they can disagree, and, they, you know, there's a difference between making a mistake and, and being aware of uh, differences. Uh, that's a whole other thing. Um, but, you know, when you, when you look at the environment that we are putting ourselves into, you know, you always talk about uh, we, ha we should be concerned about our environment. We should be, I, I agree, but look at, listen to the pattern that we've been going through lately. Does anyone notice some kind of pattern here? And, and you can put the word ban in front of any of these words, okay? Drive-through, plastic water bottles, plastic shopping bags, paper plates, cell phone use in cars, incandescent light bulbs, cosmetic use of pesticides, distracting electronic devices while driving, cars, driving, knowledge of the facts, knowledge of green history, smoking in bars and restaurants, out, outdoor clothesline bans. Yeah, that's right, a ban on a ban. Talked about that a couple weeks ago. Developing new energy resources, alternate medicines and health foods, ban Corporations ban profits, ban opposing viewpoints, ban big business and industry, ban public meetings when the wrong side shows up, ban open debate, ban cigarette displays in variety stores, ban carbon dioxide emissions. Is that really the environment that we want to live in? Is it? 
You know, that's the environment I think we need to protect. You know, we know that, as the old saying goes, when persuasion fails, use force. And I know banning conveniences seems to be the popular thing among green ideologues these days. And, you know, any product or consumer activity that's deemed to be unnecessary is being brushed with this tone of moral impropriety. I think it's the people who use force and bans for their purely political ends who should be the ones judged in a moral light, you know. So... When it comes to uh, the whole thing that happened at City Hall, I think if the fast food industry believes that the political battle facing them has been muted by, you know, the promise of incremental controls, then they don't see the bigger picture, the bigger environment that is developing around us. And limiting the growth or number of drive through establishments is no different than banning them. Uh, we, it's history. Many enterprises have been regulated and controlled to the point of non-existence or state monopoly. So, you know, is there some kind of pattern here? You can bet it there is, but it's, it's no weather pattern. And unlike the phony issue of fighting planetary climate change over which humanity truly has very little control, uh, acting to reverse our evolving toxic green environment, I think is something within the grasp of each individual. Because, of course, the environment we really need protecting has a familiar name, and that name is, of course, freedom. And that's where I think we're going to leave it with this week's show. Hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, think right, and stay right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. We got a cat. Cats are so annoying. Hey, the other night, I get up in the middle of the night to go to the kitchen to get something to eat. She's like walking through the hallway in the dark. I walk like right through this big puddle of cat pee. Yeah, it was so maddening, you know, because for the past couple of weeks, I've remembered to walk around it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of lazy. I got one of those clapper things, you know, you clap and the lights go on. You know, it's a lot of fun until that Moroccan dancer moved in next door. LAUGHTER